0: This is Transistor.fm.
1: Hey, this week we have Jason E. Vanish on the show. He talks about moving from Boston to San Francisco, as well as how he got a job at KISSmetrics doing product. Before we get started, if any of you are working on software teams and you've ever wondered, how much of our time are we spending on bugs? How much of our time are we spending on maintenance? And the all-important question How much of our time do we spend on actually building and shipping features for our customers? If you've ever asked any of those questions, you need to try Sprintly. Sprintly is project management software for agile teams. I'd like you to try Sprintly out for free. You can sign up for a 30-day trial at www.sprint.ly.
0: Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Kyle.
1: And this is product people. The podcast focused on great products and the people who
0: make them. And today is the product manager episode. Uh, we have Jason Ivanish from Kissmetrics on the show today. So, hello, Jason.
2: Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited, uh,
1: excited to talk product today. Right Sweet. on. Now, Jason, why don't we start with uh, your story? Um, all three of us are actually product managers. And product management is an interesting job. How did you get into uh, product management?
2: Uh, so it was definitely a very circuitous path. I, I didn't have like a direct path knowing like when I was a freshman in college, it's what I wanted to do. Um, I actually started out as an electrical engineer um, at a school in Boston called Northeastern. No by, <clears throat> by the time I got my degree, I realized I didn't want to be an electrical engineer. And so um, I decided to go straight into a master's program my school had called Technical Entrepreneurship. And what it was is take people with tech backgrounds and give them business backgrounds to launch companies because I knew that my passion was really in entrepreneurship and startups. Um, but when I got that degree and started trying to get a job, because I was like, oh, I should totally get some experience like in sales and marketing or something, everyone looked at me like, who the heck are you? Go be an electrical engineer and make lots of money. Like, go away. <laughs> um, but what ended up happening was uh, I found that the Boston startup community was really disorganized and messy, and so um, I ended up starting a company called Greenhorn Connect to solve that problem, and so I kind of made my own first product role, um, basically <laughs> trying to get that site off the ground um, and you know, designing what we needed and trying to solve the community's kind of customer problems. Um, and after doing that for a few months, I, uh, I basically had kind of shown people, oh, this electrical engineer can do internet startup stuff. And uh, I got a part-time job with a guy named John Prendergast, who took me under his wing and taught me customer development. Um, and conveniently, uh, after working with him for a couple of months while I was building Greenhorn Connect, um, he ended up being the independent board member of a startup called 140, uh, which was the app store for Twitter. And he was like, well, that company needs some customer development, so you should hire Jason to do it. And so I worked with the VP of product there on what our direction of the company should be um, from a product perspective. Um, And so I did that for a year. Fast forward uh, to December 2011, and I was kind of working on my own projects. And um, I visited the Valley. And one of my mentors when I was at 140 was a guy named Heaton Shaw, who's CEO of Kissmetrics. And his product person had left about two weeks before I showed up in the valley. And after a lengthy conversation about a lot of things, he said, why don't you come work for me? And three months later, March 2012, I joined Kissmetrics as their product manager because they really wanted to fill a gap they felt they had in having someone who could really be customer driven, really understand customer problems, and get the rest of the team on board doing the same thing.
1: Wow. So, when... When by the time you joined Kissmetrics, how much experience did you have um, in product management? It depends on how you count, but I would say that you know I've been managing this
2: the side project of Greenhorn Connect for about two and a half years at that point, so I would count that as like about a year of real experience doing that, and then. Uh, at 140, I didn't get to make the decisions on like what a future would look like, but you know the stuff I did in talking to customers, and you know I was really the analytics guy at uh, 140. So I kind of was, was apprenticing almost um, there to try to understand how product worked, but I wasn't getting to necessarily do the full gamut. So Kissmetrics is really kind of my uh, my first rodeo in getting to do everything and having it
1: all kind of on my head instead of maybe someone else's. Yeah, well, that's that seems like a p- pretty big role. Like Kissmetrics is a well-known company. What what do you think? Uh, Heaton Shaw saw in you that made him want to you know take you on? Um, I think a lot of it was a lot of it's the network. So um,
2: he knew the founder of 140. He knew this guy John Prendergast that taught me customer development in the beginning. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing was that Heen and I were both mentors at Lean Startup Machine New York City uh, in the April before we met in person in in December. So April 2011, Heen and I were both mentors at Lean Startup Machine, and like seven or eight months later, I was meeting him in person in the Valley again. Um, And we were both mentors at Lean Startup Machine New York. I can tell you that if you get the chance to mentor at an event, it is the best networking you can do. Because the other people that mentor are like really smart people who know a lot about whatever topic you're mentoring on. And yeah. so basically, half the time I'm helping people with the things I've learned and being in the trenches doing customer development. And the other half I'm hanging out with, you know, Patrick Bla- Bla- Patrick Laskevitz who wrote The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, and Heaton Shaw. So that was really cool. And so, like, we went out for drinks afterwards. And basically, I spent like probably 10 hours with Heaton. Um, so huh. he got to know me pretty well and, like, figured out how quickly I picked up skills and like the things I was learning on the job. And so I think it was basically that it wasn't about whether I knew how to do everything already. It was that he was confident I'd figure it out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what it's like to move from Boston to San Francisco.
2: Sure. So it's like two different worlds. Um, You know, Boston has seasons and San Francisco doesn't really, unless you count foggy versus not foggy. Um, So, you know, it's it's been a really amazing experience because while the cities have a lot in common, like they're often considered sister cities, and a lot of people live in both cities, different parts of their lives. Okay. Um, Culturally, they're completely different. Like when people ask me, like, what do you prefer, like Boston or San Francisco? It's like apples and oranges to me. Like it's really hard to say like one or the other because every everything you do and everything that's approached is totally different because the cultures are so different. Um, and of course, in the tech scene, it's like this is Mecca, this is Hollywood, this is whatever you'd like to call it. This is the epicenter of everything. And so, you know, uh, that's been a really cool experience just to be in a place where working in tech is the norm, not like this weird exception. Like, oh, you work at a startup? I've never heard of that is what I would hear in Boston and here it's like, dude, everybody does that. What are you talking about? Like, you know, you go and you play Ultimate Frisbee and somebody on your team is, uh, you know, the co-founder of Sidecar and you're like, holy shit, that's so cool. And everyone else is like, ah, you'll get used to that.
1: So would you advise maybe people that are wanting to build products? Because you've done both. You've done, you know, product in Boston and product in San Francisco and actually, maybe there's two parts of this question. First, if you were going to build your own product, where would you build it?
2: And yeah. second,
1: if you wanted to get experience in product management, which city do you think is better? Um.
2: So to me, I don't think you have to be here. Uh, the world is flat and information is everywhere. And I mean, like, Justin and Kyle, you're both in Canada right now.
1: Like, yeah.
2: And we're talking and sharing ideas and stuff. Like, between, like, Twitter... LinkedIn, Quora, blog posts, like there's so many areas where information is being shared and like there's so many people I've connected with that are in different cities that like you can learn a lot about doing great product anywhere you are. Um, I do think if like you have it in your head like I want to be in the major leagues or I want to be in Hollywood and do the whole thing like, you know, uh, then the Valley has a lot, lot to offer but also keep in mind that it is the major leagues and so like people have, there's a really high bar here that like I wouldn't have been able to start my career fresh out of grad school here and, and gotten into product. I needed the experience I got in Boston first to really uh, be able to get a foothold here and get the chance at Kissmetrics that I have.
0: Yeah, right. I think like, I mean, where is maybe less important than who you work with if you're starting out? Like yes. you kind of mentioned that you had uh, like good mentors when you started at 140. Yes. And I would say that I'm um, our, the CEO at Granify Jeff Lawrence, like he's got a pretty solid background of building successful companies, and like he's amazing as a product manager. And it's kind of my first kick at the can um, mm-hmm. with product management. And I would say that working alongside him has been like hugely valuable. It wouldn't matter to me really where the the experience happened. It's just through chance, I guess. He, he is in Edmonton and I'm in Edmonton and I got the opportunity to work with him and I think that yep. the opportunity to work with him is probably the most valuable part rather than like being located somewhere on a map.
2: Yeah, so that's the thing is, you know going to the second part of your question, Justin, about if you're starting your own thing, I think whether you're starting your own thing or you're, you're, you're looking to work with someone else on product, it's all about mentors. Like surround yourself with some really smart people and like try to learn from them and you know ideally it's great if you can work day to day side by side with someone like that or get them in as an advisor that you can meet up with in person but I mean whenever whenever I worked at 140 my two biggest mentors were Dan Martell and Heen Shaw and those were once a month phone calls where they just beat me up pretty good and you know I learned a lot from that and they were not in the same room as me and I still got a lot of value out of it so you know, if you're starting your own thing, definitely look to try to find people on the web that you admire and, and you are learning a lot from by reading their blogs or whatever they share or podcasts they do. Yeah. And, uh, and you you know, that'll really help you improve your skills no matter where you are. Um, I know I've Skyped with, with people in a lot of different places asking me about how, how to get into product and stuff. You know, there's a guy in Germany I've helped, like, you know. Again, the world is flat, so you know you can totally take advantage of it. You don't have to be here, but there are advantages where people like me wouldn't keep moving here.
1: And what for someone that you know, we have a lot of people who listen to our show that are building their own thing, and they're just solo developers, solo designers. What, sure. what, um, what do you think? That, how do you think they could benefit from getting some uh, product experience, like product management experience or experience doing customer development? What could they do? You mean? What? What? Yeah, maybe. What could they do, and how would that benefit a solo person? Like, if you're a solo developer, just saying, "Well, I just want to build my product and release it." Why? Why should they care about customer development?
2: Oh well, I mean, if you want people to actually use what you make, uh, you may want to look into uh, customer development. Uh, no, I mean, that's the thing is like, it's really fun and it's really cool to build stuff. Like I know some of the most enjoyable conversations I have is when Heat and I are just like spitballing about like random ideas, of the direction KISSmetrics could go. And those are really exciting, but then we have to ground those in reality of like, all right, where are we now with the product? What technology is really enabled right now? What can our team do? And most importantly, what do customers want right now? Cause there are things I know that we could do. that are going to be awesome, but I don't think our customers are ready for it yet. And luckily we're not really ready to give it to them. But basically if you're building your own side separate project, you need to think a lot about what your goals are with it. If you just want to build something cool for yourself, like, Hey, more power to you, your own customer, just do it. But if you actually want to get other people to use it, then it'd be a good idea to hone the skills of talking to people and understanding like, you know, how does this solve their problems or why doesn't it solve their problems? And you know, what is the core use for them? Like if you get a thousand people using something you make, You know, are they all using it as you intended? Are they actually using it for different things? Like, you'd be surprised how people will try to put a square peg in a round hole. And often, there's a really cool opportunity if you make that round hole a little more square-like for them.
1: Yeah. I think we'll get into some specific tactics about customer development a little bit later on. Uh, Before we get to that, I I just want to – because product management is an interesting um, area. And we were talking a bit before the show – um, you know, there's a lot of different definitions of what product management is. So yeah. w- what's your definition? How do you describe what a product manager does?
2: Um, so to me, you're, like the product manager is is juggling a lot of things, but your goal is to be the bridge between the voice of the customer, the interest of the business, as in we're in the business of making money at some point in some way, um, and the technical you know, manifestation of that solution. Uh, Because in the end, you're basically balancing, like, what does it seem like the customer really needs? What will help us make the most money as a business? And what is, like, the technical debt and the technical hurdles that we're facing to bring that solution to, to bear? Like, to me, the product manager is the one who has to try to figure that out. Because in the end, the designer is trying to make it look great and easy to use, and the developer just wants to build it so it works. So you have to bring those other areas to the table. Otherwise, those two guys waste their time
0: yeah right that's a that's a pretty like good description. I think people I've talked to have kind of described product management as in a lot of ways being the hub of the entire company. You're kind of yes. synthesizing information from all these different sources and at the end of the day, turning it into a shippable piece of software that hopefully customers want to pay you money for. <laughs>
2: Yes, and the other challenge is, like, figuring out, like, so I have to be a filter. I have so much information coming to me in different areas, and I know I can't inundate everybody else with that same information. So a lot of what I try to do is also figure out, like, okay, of the stuff that I'm hearing, what do I need to filter to other people so that they feel in the loop and in the know and understand why I'm suggesting doing something? Because, I don't know, I find good engineers, good designers want to know this stuff and want to be engaged and involved in it. And if you just tell them do it this way, they won't understand the why, and then, you know, you'll struggle to get the right solution. But if you can help them understand the why without, like, pouring too much information on them, then they build something really awesome because they understand the motivations behind it and what they're really trying to accomplish.
0: Well, sorry, go ahead, Kyle. I was just going to ask, like, because that's, like, you're definitely talking my language now because that's something that I'm finding a little bit uh, difficult to kinda um, get the hang of as a yeah. as a new product manager is I'm like bombarded with information from all these different sources and like I kinda have a development and design background so it was kinda mm-hmm. like toss on the headphones, chew through tasks and yeah. I mean you're kinda of still multitasking but you're for the most part you've got these like specific things that you can just kinda shut everything out and focus on but now that's not at all how I can work. Like I've got yeah. a steady stream of information coming at me from like our business development team, from our engineers, uh, all over the place. So so how do you deal with with all of that information coming at you? Like who is it coming from and how do you triage it and make sense of everything?
2: Okay, so first of all, I would say one of my best skills is pattern matching. And I think that's a skill every product manager has to hone. And so what happens is I take this data in from all over and I just like, it just chews in the back of my mind all the time looking for new patterns to emerge. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is like to get signals. So I talk to my support team all the time. I talk to the sales team all the time. Um, and we have a feedback box at the bottom of every page on Kissmetrics. And um, with that feedback box, um, we get customers telling us stuff all the time about the product. And so I read through all those. And so I have all this, like, passive information constantly coming into me, and I'm keeping an eye on it. And a lot of it I just mark up and organize so that whenever we get to a point where we're going to act on it, I can call up a whole bunch of it right away and then really try to, like, crunch on all of it at once and figure out, like, all right, here's the pattern from over here and over here. Like, for instance, at Kissmetrics, we're about to fix up our daily emails, um, which we send to customers. We've never iterated on them ever, and they're pretty terrible to be quite – In my yeah. So we're going to finally fix them and so I have like 30 emails from customers in our feedback channel about wanting them to be better. I talked to one of our top sales guys for his feedback on like what do customers really want um, and I asked support, like hey, what do you guys keep hearing on support's end about this? And then I've been crystallizing all of that into like one document that now I can pass and share with the design team and the engineering team to say like, hey, here's here's what's going on, Here's motivation behind doing this so you know I always try to tell them why are we working on this right now in addition to what are the core use cases and problems and opportunities we have and so coalescing all that in one document which we call the thesis um, has helped a lot in sharing the right level of information Um, and then you know if I go and like we're gonna talk to customers specifically about this maybe I follow up with guys I'll try and get the design and developers to maybe either Listen in on a call that I've recorded or literally sitting on a, a custom meeting or two just to give them a little flavor like we're working on a mobile app and our mobile engineer is actually leading the customer development on it. I'm in the room with him helping him, but he's actually leading a lot of the discussion and because of that it really removes a lot of those barriers where it's not Jason's opinion. It's actually what the customer's saying, you know, and, and that feels a lot better. Even if, you know, I think I've done a lot to build trust that I don't have an opinion. I'm in the voice of the customer. Um, it's, there's nothing better than them hearing the customer like going through our app and being like, I don't understand this. I'm stuck. Well, how do I do this? And he goes, oh, all right, we got to fix that. Yeah. And, you know, that's so much better than me just saying, hey, Will, you need to put a triangle on the top little button there so people know it's a button. Like yeah. he'd be like, all right, fine, I'll do that. But when you see someone actually struggling and feels that pain directly, it like changes everything for like, like how it affects an engineer or designer's opinion on something.
0: Right, because half the, half the battle with talking to designers and engineers is getting them to buy into something, right? Like why it should yeah. be done a certain way. Oh, certain... yeah. Yeah, we
2: had a feature a while back. So we have this thing called Live and Kiss Metrics, which is like a stream of current activity on your site. So it would just say like, hey, Justin is on the homepage and Kyle is looking at his metrics dashboard and like stream through. And so we did a massive iteration on it that made it easier to filter the information and stuff. And our designers thought it'd be awesome to make it like a more Twitter-like experience. So we put all kinds of rich data in each one of those entries on those people. Our customers hated it, like venom, like pure, just vicious, like, I hate you guys, like, like curse words, like, come on, what's wrong with you? This is terrible. And what's great is I uh, was lucky enough to get our designers to agree to read all the feedback coming in. And they just like it, bruised their ego so much that, like, boom, 24 hours, we had a brand new design ready to be deployed uh, to fix uh, the fact that everyone hated the new stream. And they would have like, they really thought it was gonna be great, and they had convinced me it would be great. But then our customers told us how wrong we were, and our designers seeing the venom firsthand, it made them wanna, like, fix it really fast. And it worked great because then those same customers were like, oh my god. I yelled at you guys 24 hours ago, and you already have a solution. You guys are amazing. Yeah. And so like we had the tweets, and it was like a huge emotional win for the whole company then, because everyone's like, like, "Oh my God, look what we can do when we're really motivated. Look what we can do in like a day or two, and look at the response we get from customers. Like people who tweeted they hated us 24 hours ago are tweeting they love us. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you, you can't put a price on that. Like our our designers went through like the full range of emotions in this span of like one <laughs> week.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that You used an interesting word there, ego, which like Justin, yeah. earlier when you asked what maybe a single founder could learn about product management and customer development, I think that that's probably um, something that everybody who starts their own product needs to kind of go through is this like ego crush that you actually don't know best. Like you could be a super talented designer or engineer, but your assumptions are not necessarily true because you know how to design or code. Like it's pretty humbling to release something that you think is perfect and then, like you said, just it gets slammed. People hate it and they refuse to yeah. use it. And getting caught like that is a pretty valuable lesson for for anyone to learn, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at, uh, I don't know if you guys are Evernote users like I am, but I use Sketch a lot. Yeah. And when they release the new Sketch, everyone's like, this is awful. I hate you so much.
1: Yeah. And yeah. so
2: it got to the point where they had to release the old version, and I still use the old version because I still think the new one's terrible. Yeah. Um, and, and and what's funny is um, I saw Phil Libin got interviewed by Jason Calacanis a couple weeks ago out here, um, and one of the things he talked about is the Evernote philosophy is that you don't talk to customers before you build it, you only talk to customers afterwards to see what they hate and you fix the things they hate and the rest you don't worry about. And so it's like, oh my God, Sketch makes so much sense now. Like They built it because <laughs> they thought these things would be great to like better integrate with Evernote and stuff, not realizing that, dude, you're totally jacking my workflow. I make sketches really fast and I don't want to save them all to Evernote automatically.
1: Yeah. I think for a lot of product people, actually a lot of people in general, this is a huge paradigm shift, the idea of getting away from your idea that you love and becoming more people-focused. And so maybe this is a good time to talk about customer development. You're becoming known as an advocate for customer development. Um, Could you describe for our listeners what customer development is?
2: Yeah, it's like a series of tactics or, you know, kind of a methodology to get to the core of what a customer really needs. Like the goal is like what is their problem? And then you create a solution that uh you know can really delight them. Um uh, and you know the real challenge is that customers don't flat out say, Justin, my email newsletter tool sucks. Will you help me make will you help me, you know, uh solve these things that your newsletter solves? Like exactly people don't People don't come out and say that, so you need a process for how to, like, draw it out of them. And, like, I know one of the hardest things is I don't know if you guys have ever had to talk to product managers as, like, part of your, like, um, uh, part of your user base, but they're the worst people to talk to because (laughs) we always have – we're like, dude, I'm a product manager. I know the perfect solution for what I want. Yeah. And, like, as a, as a fellow PM, you have to be like, no, dude, just tell me what your problems are. I have to try to solve this for many customers, not just you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's customer development is that process. And I think the most valuable thing is, dude, you want to get politics out of your company. Like, one of the fastest ways to do it is become a data-driven company. And that means, like, buying into analytics and it means talking to the customer. Because there's no argument anymore whenever everyone just says, well, this is what a customer told me and this is what a customer told me. And here's what the numbers say. Like once that happens, all the opinions and the hippos, you know, the highest paid person, in the organization, all that goes out the window because now you just have the numbers and the data. And so like that's one of the biggest reasons I love this process is that in addition to being better at building stuff people want, it gets rid of
1: all the bullshit. Hmm. Now, maybe talk about that a little bit more because sure. a lot of people think that um, customer development is... in is highly subjective so uh, I'm I'm talking to human beings and I'm a human being and what I'm interpreting uh, I'm then saying okay well this is where we're gonna take the product based on this but it's a it's a human conversation sure and so how, how how do you deal with that element the subjective
2: element um, I guess you have to trust the interpreter I mean just like I guess you know if you had someone who's interpreting Chinese to English in an important business meeting you know, they have a pretty important job, and like there could be things lost in translation, um, and that's why I talked about the importance of when doing customer development, giving your developers and designers on the front lines is actually hugely valuable, because mm. if I'm removing myself from the translation at times, um, I think that can help a lot in in removing any biases that I may have, because we all have our biases in how we interpret information. Um, but between that and just pulling data from enough different places, I think it removes a lot of it. So. The fact that I'll go and talk to ten customers specifically about something new we're doing. And I'll also pull in things from our feedback channel and I'll talk to support on what they're hearing and I'll talk to sales and I'll share all of that. Like it basically means that well we're hearing it from so many different places. It's like after a while you hear the same thing everywhere. And then it's like no longer a bias because you're like, it's it's just so loud. It's totally the signal is so much higher than the noise now that Hmm. there's no room for interpretation.
0: Yeah. So, so you kind of you mentioned data and analytics and stuff. Mm-hmm. What what sorts of things do you track? Like, what kinds of data do you do you look at?
2: Um, so, I look for product adoption a lot. So, you know, what features are people using most? Like, I find you can learn the most from your power users because um, often just because someone uses a feature a lot doesn't mean they're in love with it. You know, often they use it a lot because again, it's a square peg, round hole thing it does it good enough, and then they end up using it a lot because it's not quite perfect in what they were looking for. And so one of the things I often do is Kissmetrics tracks people down to the individual level. And so um, I'm not trying to sound like an infomercial, but it actually really helps me do my customer development because I can do a search based on, like, who's using this feature a lot and then go talk to them and find out what's really going on. Hmm. Um, also, there's a tool called Qualaroo, which actually we made but we sold to another company that's now taking it to another level. Qualaroo um, does little pop-up surveys on pages, and so what I love to do is pick a page on my site um, in the product and basically send it, have a little pop-up, ask them a question, and then based on the answer, you follow up with them. Um, oh. And uh, so, yeah, so that gives me a lot of opportunities to talk to them.
0: Cool. So so is it, are those primarily the two, um, like, pieces of software that you use? Like- two tools is Kismetrics and
2: Kolaroo. um Yeah, I mean we'll do surveys too but I don't like to do surveys until I kind of know the answers I'm going to get. Like I don't like asking open-ended questions on surveys very often or very many of them because it reduces the response rate a lot. So what I like to do is if I talk to like 10 people and I do a couple things with like a Qualaroo pop-up, um, we'll then create a survey based on what we know now the answers are going to be um, and you know send out it to our wider customer base to get you know essentially quantitative data to go with the qualitative data because in the end I think to me customer development good product and being a data-driven company is all about having a firm balance of uh, qualitative data as well as well as quantitative data um, and, and really it's like quantitative data tells you what the larger base is thinking and the qualitative data helps you understand the why behind it so qualitative uh, quantitative data is going to be able to tell you say you know, 45% of customers say that live is the most important feature to them. And the qual- qualitative data will then tell you why they, 45% of customers say that live is the most important feature to them. Because you won't, you just won't know. And even if they fill out the why in the comment box, often you need to talk to someone for five minutes to really get to the core of what they're really trying to do with it. And the one sentence they write in a survey isn't going to inform you as
0: well. Yeah, I think, like, um, talking about sort of the importance of both qualitative and quantitative, mm-hmm. especially in like a lean sort of process is you basically need both equally because you know the whole idea of building hypothesis building a hypothesis is based largely on qualitative data like you talked about like this incoming yeah. information you use in recognition and you kind of build up a hypothesis hypothesis you test it out and then you use the quantitative results to either to say like what the outcome of that hypothesis test was.
2: Yeah, yeah that's exactly it. Um, the other thing I find is that the one risk I think in customer development when you're just talking to customers is edge cases. So if I talk to 10 people there's an outside chance that with our like over 1,000 person customer base we have at Metrics, If I talk to 10 people that might not actually be representative of the entire population of KISS Metrics. and so a survey and like quantitative data can be a good way to say, like, oh, three of those people I talked to actually represent that, like, 1% population, and so I need to pay a little bit more attention to what those other six people said, because they're representative of, like, 70% of the population, and so, you know, it helps uh, remove any biases you have, because you can't talk to all 1,000
1: of your customers every day.
0: Yeah. Well, this Um, might be,
1: oh, sorry, go ahead, Kyle. uh,
0: I was just going to say, that kind of got me thinking of another thing where you talk sure. about measuring product adoption. Um, so yeah. when you guys say you have a new feature um, that mm-hmm. you've decided you're gonna build and test, do you kind of roll it out incrementally and then deal with, like you you sort of talked about how Evernote's um, they're like, they release it and then they just deal with the things that people hate. Do you kind of yep. incrementally roll it out and iterate and gradually go out to larger amounts of customers or how does how does a feature rollout work in Metrics?
2: It depends on the feature. Um, If it's an iteration on a current feature and we feel pretty confident about it, um, we'll usually do, uh, so we have a preview site that we'll put all of our product on that our team can play around with it before we release it. And sometimes we'll let a couple of customers play with it too. Um, And then we'll just release it to everyone. Uh, But if it's a brand new feature, generally the way we've been approaching it is that we'll release it to like 10 to 20 people who are like really seem passionate and interested in it. To get their feedback and see, one, do they actually use it? Because if they said it was a burning problem, and then they don't actually use it. That's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty strong indicator that there might be trouble. And then two, like, what are problems you have with it? And so, if you uh, release a new feature to a handful of these people, they can give you the feedback you need um, to make it good before you put it in front of everyone. Because like I know, I would much rather you know release a sketch that people hate to like a dozen people and find out why they hate it and fix it then I would like to roll that out to our whole customer base and have them freak out. Yeah. Um, and so we've done that with a number of things. Like our analytics app right now, um, we have in essentially a private limited release. We have like a few thousand people on a mailing list that signed up on a landing page. And now we're rolling out like 100 at a time, giving them access to get feedback on what they do and don't like about it. And there's definitely a lot of things um, that we need to fix. And what's great is, Uh, We only have one mobile engineer working on it, so he's like cranking him, just working like crazy. And this buys some time. Like, we have enough we can put it in people's hands, but it's not, like, feature-rich yet. And already, because of feedback we've gotten, it's completely changed what he thought he was going to be building next week. And (laughs) so, like, you can't put a price on, like, the feedback we got that prevented us from wasting his time building a feature that would take him a couple of weeks to build.
1: And a big thanks goes out to Jason Evanish for being on the show this week. You can check out Jason on Twitter at Evanish. We have Jason back next week to talk about the specifics of customer development. He also lays out this really helpful step-by-step plan uh, for launching uh, an app and testing out the idea before you write any code. Now it's time for shoutouts. Shoutouts are a chance for you to advertise your bootstrapped product, a job opportunity, or your side project to our audience of product people. It doesn't cost that much. You can purchase your own shout-out by going to productpeople.tv shoutout Let's get to the first shout-out. The first shout-out goes out to Sam Baumgarten. Check out Sam Baumgarten's blog to learn about creating web apps and get updates on his projects, such as Nathan Berry's Convert Kit. You can check that out at Sambohmgarten.me. That's Sam, B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N.me. And our second shout-out is to subscribe to our newsletter. If you want to get the updates and resources we only send to our mailing list members, then you need to be on our list. You can sign up by going to productpeople.tv newsletter. Again, if you want to purchase your own shout out, you can go to productpeople.tv slash As always, if you have any feedback, you can get us on Twitter at productpeople.tv or email us at productpeople at bizbox.ca. We will see you next time.